Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the third-party directories. I have a blog that uh, you can check out. The name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you want to reach out to me, please feel free to do so. You you can do that by sending an email at uh, rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is March 30th, 2022, and we are in the midst of a money and media feeding frenzy in college basketball, unlike anything that we have experienced in recent memory. And that is driven in large part by the historic matchup coming up on Saturday between Duke and UNC in the Final Four. And on the other side of the Final Four bracket, we've got two blue blood heavyweights going at it as well with Kansas and Villanova. So if you're CBS, Turner, the NCAA, all of their corporate partners and champions and all of the various vultures that swirl around the Division I men's basketball tournament every year. This is as good as it gets. And every layer of the big-time college sports ecosystem is squeezing value out of this historic opportunity. And as this exploitation orgy plays out over the next several days and through the weekend and into the championship game on Monday, I want to talk about the true value and the unique position that these athletes have in the big-time college sports business model. And I think it's really important to isolate the interests of high-level Division I men's basketball players in the overall business model, because one of the things that's happened in this athletes' rights discussion and in the evolution of the athletes' rights movement is that the interests of revenue-producing football players and revenue-producing basketball players have been conflated. And while there is no doubt that they have more in common than not in terms of the overall exploitation model and Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, there are critical differences between the interests of those two stakeholder groups in the overall business model. And I really want to focus in this episode on why big-time men's basketball players are so important to the NCAA and how different, in many ways, their interests are from any other subset of NCAA athletes in the entire business model. And I want to start with a return to some of the fundamentals of the business model in big-time college sports. The first principle is the relationship in the overall business model between the big-time powerful football products and the big-time powerful basketball products. And remember, we've talked so much about this Board of Regents decision in 1984 when big-time football sued for its financial freedom under antitrust laws and won. And after that historic decision, big-time football does its own thing. The NCAA has absolutely nothing to do with any of the revenue streams that come out of big-time football. And after Board of Regents, the NCAA was left with its consolation prize, which is the March Madness Tournament, the Division I men's basketball tournament. 
the NCAA started almost immediately after Board of Regents, just exploiting and marketing the ever-living hell out of that single tournament because it was the only source of revenue that the NCAA had after it lost its football empire. And since 1984, the NCAA, through relentless promotion, advertising, branding, marketing, and partnering with some of the most powerful corporate entities in America has transformed this tournament into one of the most important sports and cultural events of the year. And in 1994, the NCAA began the massive long-term escalating contract format for exploiting the revenue in March Madness. And that was with CBS and CBS alone. Then in 2010, Turner came on board. But you've had a series of these astronomically valuable contracts. I think the total value of all these contracts into 2021 was $20 billion. And in the latest iteration of that long-term contract, the value of the tournament exceeds a billion dollars a year. And that contract extends into 2030. Two. So I've talked about this before, and one of the components of the big-time college sports business model that doesn't get a lot of attention are these long-term contracts. And this NCAA CBS Turner contract has been job security for the NCAA national office. And it's also important to point out that the NCAA has an absolute monopoly over the postseason championship basketball market. And I talked in a, a couple episodes ago about the NIT and how it has really become a uh, shadow of its former self. And the NCAA purchased the NIT as part of a settlement in an antitrust suit brought by the NIT because of the NCAA's monopolistic practices with the postseason basketball market. And now the NCAA has absolute control over that market, just as it did over the football market prior to 1984. And just to put into context the increase in the value of the March Madness Tournament. In 1984, which was my senior year at Duke, and I, I've mentioned before that I played basketball for Duke. I was on Coach K's early teams. I was a senior in, in that 83-84 season. But in that season, the NCAA sold the media broadcast rights for $15 million. In today's dollars, that's about $40 million. And that tournament is now valued at over a billion dollars a year. And that's the value to the NCAA. That doesn't count all of the other benefits, financial benefits that flow down at the conference level and at the institutional level. And I just want to point out that the value of this tournament has increased in a way that cannot be accounted for solely by the drama that is attendant to big tournaments like this. In any tournament with 68 teams, you're going to have exciting games. You're going to have buzzer beaters. You're going to have upsets. You're going to have incredible storylines. And that was true in 1984. There were some great storylines then, some great teams, some upsets. But since that 1984 tournament, you look at it 
then and then you look at it now, today it is a cultural phenomenon. And that is not merely the product of the structural excitement built into any kind of tournament like this. It is the product of some of the most sophisticated marketing, branding, and promotion of a sporting event in the history of American sports. And it now sits side by side with the Super Bowl as the most valuable commercial products in all of sports. And the difference between this tournament and the Super Bowl is that from a marketing standpoint and an exposure standpoint and a potential revenue stream standpoint, the NCAA basketball tournament lasts for three weeks, and I think you also have to include the week before it starts, the Champ Week, the ESPN Champ Week lead-in. You've got a month of basketball drama with the Super Bowl. Yeah, you have the playoffs, but they aren't in a coordinated tournament like you have with the NCAA tournament. It's a different type of elimination process, and you have a week for the Super Bowl. You have the lead-in week, and it's a big party, and it gets all kinds of attention. And then the advertising revenue, which I'm going to talk a little bit about here in the context of the NCAA tournament, you have that going through the roof. And you have a one-week product versus a one-month product with college basketball. And the other thing I want to point out, and this is really important in assessing the true value of the athletes in this tournament, is that we have all this hype about the underdogs. And this year we had a special storyline with St. Peter's. But this tournament almost always returns to form in the final four. And you have college basketball's blue bloods on that final stage. And that's exactly the way that CBS, Turner, and all of the, the folks in the ecosystem want it. This is what America wants to see. They want to see the best play the best. And while St. Peter's uh, incredible run dominated storylines, and it should have, do you think that all of the corporate interests wanted to see Duke and St. Peter's in the Final Four? Would that have been a, a nice novelty? Yes. Would it have had incredible ratings? Yes. But would they rather have had Duke and St. Peter's or Duke and UNC matching up in the Final Four, meeting each other for the first time in NCAA tournament history with the compelling storylines of Coach K's last week as a basketball coach at Duke, the rivalry, which has been, in my judgment, appropriated by the national media now. I don't know if I'm going to get into that, but this is a Tobacco Road thing. This is a North Carolina thing. And if you're not an authentic member of the Tobacco Road Club, you really can't have a full appreciation for what the rivalry means here in North Carolina at the cultural level. And of course, in the two meetings this year between Duke and UNC, you had some strange outcomes. Carolina lost by 20 when Duke went over to Chapel Hill, and that was a unique game, and that did not reflect the true difference between these teams. Then you had a reversal of that in this historic game, Coach Gay's last game in Cameron on March 5th, and that, I don't believe, reflected the true difference between these two teams. Now, you have a stage where all that's in the rearview mirror. The players are playing for themselves, and the Duke players are, are playing for their legacy, not for Coach K's. And perhaps most importantly, both teams are finally playing to their 
potential. I don't know if either team has hit their ceiling, but both teams are playing exceptional basketball right now. And this matchup is a gift from the basketball broadcast media gods. And what I'm going to do right now is go through the NCAA's 2018 Form 990 tax return, which covers the period of September of 2018 to the end of August of 2019. So this includes revenue from the 2019 March Madness tournament. And it was the last quote unquote regular year that the NCAA had. 2020, of course, there was no tournament at all because of COVID. And then last year, the NCAA imposed the tournament on the college basketball world to try to keep the gravy train flowing. And it was a train wreck of a tournament. And you had some of the best brands not even qualifying for the tournament because the regular season had been decimated by COVID and cancellations and all kinds of problems. And the NCAA was going to play that tournament come hell or high water, even if all but two teams COVID tested out of eligibility. I mean, it was just an embarrassment to the game of basketball. And as I go through this document and go through the basic revenues and then the expenses and then some of the executive salaries, my hope is that people watching the games this weekend will look at these athletes and have some appreciation for the extraordinary burden that they bear in the big time college sports marketplace. And if there's one thing that I hope for in the takeaway from this episode, it's that these athletes, these high level men's basketball players play a unique and critical role in the NCAA business model. And when I go through how this money is spent, I want you to understand that not a penny of the money that underwrites these expenses comes from Alabama football or Ohio State football or Clemson football or Oregon football. Not one penny. All these expenses are paid by UNC basketball, Kansas basketball, Duke basketball, Villanova basketball, the Blue Bloods, the perennially successful teams that drive the value in this multi-billion dollar contract between the NCAA and CBS Turner. And I'm going to talk about the ways that the NCAA just plasters its logos, its garbage all over this tournament. But as I talk about that propaganda campaign, I want to, to contrast it with the complete absence of any NCAA logos or trademarks or product or propaganda during the college football playoff, because the college football playoff has absolutely nothing to do with the NCAA because of Board of Regents. And the CFP is developing its own brand, its own logos, its own identity. And I think it's going to take a long time before consumers have that identity, that brand connection between the CFP and Power Five football that they have between uh, men's basketball and the NCAA. And I think that speaks to the power and effectiveness of the NCAA's decades-long branding campaign and their propaganda. So let me get to this Form 990 and go through some of these line-itemed expenses. And one of the things that stands out, or it does to me at least, the NCAA says that 
95 cents on the dollar in, from the revenue that it generates goes back to enhancing the student-athlete experience. And when we t- walk through some of these numbers, I want to keep that in mind as well. But when you look at the total amount of money that goes back to member institutions in the form of grants, and that means money that comes directly to the schools, they can spend any way they want to. The NCAA doesn't tell schools how to spend this money. They have some categories of funds that they identify for these distributions. But outside of some limited reporting requirements, there's really no enforcement mechanism to track how this money is spent. But for 2018, the total revenue for the NCAA was about $1.1 billion. And almost $900 million of that came directly from the CBS Turner contract. Then you had another $170 million uh, coming in from ticket sales. They combined that with the NIT. But you're looking at about a billion dollars of that $1.1 uh, billion that is directly attributable to the March Madness basketball tournament. But the amount of grant money that goes back is $635 million. That's half of the total revenue. And when I go through what happens with the other $500 million, you can decide for yourselves whether those expenditures are consistent with the enhancement of the student-athlete experience and is spent in a way that's consistent with the NCAA and its member institutions' nonprofit missions. So let's start with who's running this shooting match in Indianapolis, and that is the National Office staff. So in uh, 2018, if we add up the compensation of the key employees, then other salary and wages, pension plans, employee benefits, and payroll taxes for the 600-plus employees, at the NCAA National Office in Indianapolis, we are already up to $80 million a year. $80 million a year. Again, paid exclusively from the labors of the big-time basketball players, like the athletes that you're going to see this weekend in the Final Four. Now, to put a finer point on these salaries, I want to go to the Schedule J of this Form 990 tax return, which requires the NCAA and all nonprofits to identify their officers, directors, trustees, key employees, and highest compensated employees. At the top of the list is none other than Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA. And this is the man who is the titular head of the NCAA and Power Five's war against revenue-producing athletes. And he has taken to the halls of Congress. His lawyers have taken to the highest courts in the country. His lobbyists have taken to the back rooms in the Senate primarily, but also in the House to pump NCAA propaganda and outright lies, to have those lies protected through federal legislation or through a favorable ruling in a federal court case. And that's exactly why they appealed this Austin case. The NCAA appealed this case, not the athletes. The NCAA took that case to the United States Supreme Court, believing that it was going to get absolute antitrust immunity. And Mark Emmert was out there being the face of those fundamentally dishonest power plays that, if successful, would have ended the athletes' rights movement. How much does Mark Emmert get paid 
for serving that role as the standard bearer for NCAA propaganda and lies. He gets paid uh, $2.7 million, or he got paid that in the uh, tax year 2018. In prior tax years, he was making close to $4 million, and every penny of that indefensible salary is paid exclusively from the labors of the athletes that you're going to watch this weekend in the Final Four. So let's go down the list. Donald Remy, he's no longer with the NCAA. He left in April of 2021 to take a position in the Biden administration. But Donald Remy was right there with Mark Emmert. They were uh, two peas in a pod putting together this strategy, this inside the beltway strategy to eliminate the athletes' rights movement. His title was chief operating officer, but he's an attorney and he is connected in Washington, D.C. circles. And he was making one3 $3 million a year before he left the NCAA. Let's see. And then going down the list, the uh, the bookkeeper. The bookkeeper always gets paid a bunch of money. So the NCAA's bookkeeper, Kathleen McNeely, made almost $700,000 in 2018. And then let's see, Dan Gavitt, Mr. Basketball Guy, Senior Vice President. He has a nice title. He's making or made in 2018 600000 Joni Comstock, she and Gavitt were at the center of the women's tournament debacle last year because they're supposed to be responsible for that tournament. So Ms. Comstock was making $600,000 a year. And then just down the list, executive vice, vice president, 550000 Vice president, 542000 That's John Duncan, who's the head of infractions and enforcement. That's what you get for uh, running the NCAA's corrupt infractions and enforcement process. Half a million a year. Kevin Lennon, has been a human talking point and has testified at these antitrust cases. And he just says whatever needs to be said to try to preserve the status quo. He's a vice president making half a million. All these people have vice president uh, titles. There are all kinds of vice presidents or executive vice president. That's a pretty nice title to have at the NCAA because you're going to be upwards of half a million dollars a year if you're in that in that category. Let's see. Brian Hainline, the chief medical officer in 2018, was making over 700000 thousand dollars a year. And then we got some more executives, 400,000, 450,000, 400,000, 450,000. Then we have three former employees. This is the golden parachute crowd. Combined, these three employees got paid about a million dollars in 2018 for doing absolutely nothing. And I think it's important to understand that this salary structure exists in the nonprofit world. And I think if you took this salary structure to other executives in nonprofits in different sectors, they would say it doesn't pass the blush test. But don't expect the university presidents and chancellors to come running in demanding an accounting to know where this money is really going and why these people are making so much money. They've turned a blind eye to these corrupt salaries and these absurd positions in the NCAA national office and its executive staff. And that happened in 2003 when Miles Brand, one of their darlings, a former university president, became the president of the NCAA. Mark Emmert is also a former university president. The Code of Amerta has been operating pretty well for Mark Emmert. And nobody's looking under the rocks at the NCAA national office. Where's the curiosity? And again, every penny of the salaries I just identified is paid from the labors of the top 
basketball programs in Division One. They're mostly in the Power Five. Villanova's a Big East product, and it's been the standard bearer for the Big East. But this is the the highest levels of Division One men's basketball paying all of these expenses. And just one more thing on, on this salary structure. There was not a word of discussion or criticism during this debate over the new constitution, which started the beginning of August of 2021 and came to fruition when the constitution was ratified on January 20th of 2022. Nobody was saying that the national office needed to be pared down, that these salaries were ridiculous, the staff is bloated, and that these uh, expenses were simply indefensible in the nonprofit world. So on the backside of this constitutional makeover, which left the NCAA president and the NCAA national office with even less power and authority and responsibility than it had before, they're still making the same money. And I believe they're going to continue to make the same money. And the reason I say that, and this is another important interplay between the football interests and the basketball interests, is that this constitutional makeover was a power play by the Power Five football interests. It's the completion, really, of the autonomy movement in 2013, 2014. And in the overall business model, this March Madness revenue is just a tiny sliver, and it pales in contrast to the uh, amount of money that comes in through big-time Power Five football. So the big-time powerful football interests that now control the NCAA officially, they could not care less about this March Madness money or the corruption at the NCAA national office so long as their interests are segregated and protected under the NCAA umbrella. All right, so that's $80 million in salary and benefits. Now let's go to, let's see, what's the next item on the functional expenses listed in this Form 990? We have other we don't know what the hell that is. $20 million of quote-unquote other. Wouldn't it be great if there was some curiosity about that money? Where are these university presidents or the people on this constitutional committee or this transformation committee calling for a forensic accounting of the NCAA national office? And where the hell is the IRS? And then we have legal expenses and lobbying fees. And I want to talk about both of those because it's so important to isolate those two expenses because it's through those two national office initiatives and their legal fees are part of a campaign to try to get issues in front of federal courts that will result in favorable rulings that will protect the business model. Even though they claim about besieging and frivolous litigation and they're being hauled into court against their will, that's not how they played the Austin case. That's not how they played it at all. They used that as a first strike weapon through the appellate process to get to the U.S. Supreme Court their claim that they should have absolute immunity from fair competition laws. And they lost. I just want to say again, I've made this point many times in this podcast. When you look at the cost of the litigation just in O'Bannon and Austin, those two suits alone, which spanned 12 years. The NCAA paid almost half a billion dollars. In the O'Bannon suit, it was about $150 million. In Austin, it was over $300 million. And what were the NCAA and the Power Five fighting like hell to 
prevent. They were fighting like hell to prevent athletes from getting a cost of attendance increase in the athletic scholarship that was deemed name, image, and likeness compensation. O'Bannon was a name, image, and likeness case. They spent $150 million and I don't know how many years of litigation, almost a decade if you count the attorney's fees, saying over our dead body, will these athletes get a penny of name, image, and likeness compensation? And then in Austin, that case was supposed to strike down all of the NCAA's compensation limits, but it was whittled down to these education benefits, which now amount to less than $6,000 per year for those schools that offer them, both the full cost of attendance remedy in O'Bannon and then the education benefits in Austin are purely permissive. So after all that litigation, after a half a billion dollars in uh, line in the sand litigation by the NCAA and Power Five, the athletes have the opportunity to have these two modest benefits, but they're not guaranteed. The, the institutions don't have to provide them. And nearly every penny of that half a billion dollars that went to legal fees and settlements in those two cases was paid from NCAA revenue, which means it was paid from money made from the labors of the very athletes that you're going to watch this weekend in the final four, the high-level Division I men's basketball players. The Power 5 football interest kicked in only a nominal sum on the backside of Austin to pay the athletes' attorney's fees. That was their sole contribution. And the NCAA has paid those settlements and those legal fees from reserves in NCAA accounts. Again, from men's basketball, not from big-time football or from any other product throughout the NCAA system. And as I've discussed in detail, through their high-powered lobbyists, Brownstein Hyatt, they've paid millions to over the years. In this return, they paid uh, $410,000 for 2018. And I've talked about this at length, but the primary purpose of the NCAA's engagement with Congress, and remember, the NCAA went to Congress. They weren't dragged kicking and screaming to explain their anti-competitive business practices in front of Congress. They went on offense. And the purpose of their offensive campaign in the United States Senate was to completely steamroll any external regulatory threat. So they wanted antitrust immunity from federal antitrust liability. They wanted an absolute preemption provision that would have nullified any state law or regulation that attempted to give the athletes some basic rights or some basic compensation and anything that conflicted with the NCAA's regulatory power. If they had gotten preemption, all those state laws would just be wiped off the books and they would be gone forever. They couldn't come back. And then they were also asking for a declaration from Congress that athletes could not be deemed employees of their university. That is what I mean by the war against revenue-producing athletes. Those three things that go to protect the business model are only relevant to the sports and the athletes who actually generate revenue and could actually compete in an open marketplace with the excessive salaries that all these people are getting from the NCAA national office down to 
athletics department personnel at Power Five universities and some of these ridiculous coaching salaries, all of those revenue streams would be at risk in the eyes of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries if these athletes who provide the value in the big-time college sports marketplace had access to the same economic freedoms as the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have. That's the long and short of it. And these federal protections and immunities would have made it impossible for these athletes to have their basic economic rights protected, and it would have been game, set, match. All that runs through NCAA lobbying. And the ultimate irony in the NCAA's lobbying and litigation campaigns in their war against revenue-producing athletes is that the athletes that you're going to watch on Saturday in the Final Four pay for all of those expenses. They are literally funding the weapons that have been used against them in a war against revenue-producing athletes, and that war has very uncomfortable racial connotations. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But it's also critical to understand that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries haven't changed their tactics or their values one iota, despite what has happened since the summer of 20. 21. In September of 2021, after the Austin decision, after the NCAA was forced to dump all of its nil garbage at the feet of the institutions, the uh, NCAA and the Power Five had representatives sitting behind microphones in the House of Representatives at a hearing on uh, September 30th of 2021. And I've talked quite a bit about that. I did an episode, actually several episodes on that. And Linda Livingstone, the Baylor University president, a Power Five school, was uh, sitting behind a microphone asking for all three of these federal protections and immunities. You would think that after Austin, you would think that after the nil debacle, there would be some introspection, some sense of, wait a minute, we're getting some messages here that we really need to listen to. So we need to step back and maybe rethink our strategy. No, they doubled down on the strategy that they brought in to their campaign that began in 2019 to eliminate the athletes' rights movement. And in that hearing, Linda Livingstone and Mark Emmert, with the assistance of of Republican NCAA Power Five friendly members of that subcommittee, they all made the case that if revenues from football, men's basketball weren't taken and then redistributed to downstream beneficiaries like non-revenue and quote-unquote Olympic sport athletes and, and female athletes, then that would be a crime against college sports and against higher education. They took the beneficiaries of that transfer of wealth and turned them into victims and didn't acknowledge the value, the true value of the athletes who generate the revenue that they then take and send downstream. And Linda Livingstone, Mark Emmert, and NCAA Power Five friendly Republican members of that subcommittee, they specifically invoked Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model as a financial framework for the business of big-time college sports. They didn't mention Miles Brand, but they invoked that framework. And that is based on the belief that there is a mandate, a duty to exploit revenue in football and men's basketball so that that money can be taken and sent downstream to, quote-unquote, participation opportunities 
opportunities for athletes in non-revenue and Olympic sports, and that it's okay to professionalize football, men's basketball, and to have that operate like the NFL and the NBA, so long as on the output side, you are in doing something that's consistent with your nonprofit mission. And Miles Brand in 2006 said, well, gosh, if we have some scholarships for non-revenue athletes, then that's a good thing. And that's consistent with our nonprofit mission. So it doesn't matter how we make the money. What matters is how we spend it. And that has been one of the biggest lies in big time college sports since Miles Brand invented it in 2006. And to this day, nobody's talking honestly about the existence of that framework the purpose of that framework, and the consequences of that framework, because it is a massive regressive transfer of wealth from largely African-American laborers to largely downstream white beneficiaries. And there are all kinds of problems with it. I'm not going to go through it again. But until we come to grips with the realities of the collegiate model in 2022, I think the discussions about the truth of the business model are incomplete. We absolutely need that on the table. And I talked at length about the collegiate model in episodes 19 and 20, and then I believe it was episode 69. So you can go back and listen to those, and I go through the history in detail of the uh, collegiate model and the context in which it was developed, and that's so important as well, because what Miles Brand was trying to do was reconcile this uh, century-long tension between the mission and values of higher education and the increasingly professionalized, commercialized component that is big-time college sports. And the collegiate model, I think, was his grand reconciliation. But on the backside of it, the consequence was that we have this massive regressive transfer of wealth, and nobody will talk honestly about that. They don't acknowledge that this is a purposeful financial structure that has been the bedrock of the big-time college sports marketplace since 2006. It actually existed before that, but it was ensconced into formal NCAA policy and practice in 2006. And the disconnection between the revenue-generating products and the educational mission of higher education has grown as a result of the collegiate model. And the burden that's been placed on these athletes, the extraordinary financial burden to underwrite the entire big-time college sports marketplace, makes it impossible for them to be regular students or to get a meaningful education. And then you add on top of that, the NCAA's propaganda from this Olympic cycle that without NCAA sports, the quote-unquote Olympic sports, we wouldn't be able to field Olympic teams. How are those sports funded? They're funded by revenue from football, men's basketball. Football's not an Olympic sport, and college basketball players aren't really eligible to play in the Olympics anymore. So you have these two products that have nothing to do with the Olympics, funding all this Olympic development in the eyes of the NCAA, and that's an additional burden because in most countries in the world, that financial burden is borne by the government, not by private entities. So honestly, what more can you pile on the backs of these athletes? What more can you ask of them? And then you've got these people, Bob Bowlesby and Greg Sankey and Mark Emmert and Linda Livingstone, all saying, these athletes, look at everything they get. They should just sit down and shut up. They get some spending money for college and they get meals. They get, they, we actually feed them now. 
we didn't do that before, but now we really feed them the way they need to be fed. And they can go to the Student Opportunity Fund and get some money if they need some clothes because they didn't own a suit to travel with the team. So you guys, when they say you guys, when they put all these, look at how great they have it, narratives in place, they're talking about revenue producing football and men's basketball players. That's it. And they're saying, sit down and shut the hell up because you don't know how good you've got it. So let's look at some of the other things that the athletes you're going to watch on Saturday and Monday pay for in this grand exploitation market. And I guess I want to say one more thing about the collegiate model. People often ask, well, what do you mean exploited? How are these athletes exploited? Explain that to me. It's very simple. When you look at Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, and when you take money from the people who earn it, all the money, all of it, from the money from the people who earn it, and then you send it down to a class of beneficiaries that is comparatively affluent and comparatively better off, that is exploitation. When you steal the labor and the fruits of that labor from a class of workers in this country and you pay them far below fair market value, that is exploitation. And in that statement, I'm, I'm conceding that the athletic scholarship is indeed a form of payment. The NCAA denies that, but it is a form of payment and it is outright pay for play. And it has been since 1956 and the advent of the full athletic scholarship. But that's not adequate compensation. And the U.S. Supreme Court explicitly said that, that the problem with the the business model is that these athletes are being paid below fair market value. Their wages are suppressed. Their liberties are suppressed below what those what their talents would bring in an open and free and fair market. That is exploitation. So let's continue down the list. We've got 16 million dollars, almost 17 million dollars in quote unquote travel. Now that's not broken down. But we do know because of some of the other disclosures in this 533-page tax return that the NCAA president and certain of its executives are flying in private jets. And who knows where the hell they're going? Who knows who's on those planes? And in that regard, I want to know who's going to be in the NCAA hospitality suite at the Final Four. That also is paid by the basketball players. The private jetting is paid by the basketball players. The conventioneering is paid by the basketball players. Let's throw that in there too. So how much was that in 2018? That was, let's see, that was about 7 million. So with travel and conferencing and committeeing and conventioneering, you had $23 million. That's a lot of money. All of it paid by high-level Division I men's basketball players. Again, this type of spending is begging for an explanation, begging for some accounting, begging for someone in the system to put pressure on this national office to explain where the hell this money actually goes. And then all of this insurance, this catastrophic disability insurance that the NCAA brags about is this wonderful benefit for athletes. It has a $90,000 deductible, by the way. So I'm not sure how valuable that actually is. But you have the NCAA just propagandizing that. That costs $21 million a year, and it applies to athletes in every sport 
in all three divisions, yet it is paid exclusively by revenue generated by high-level Division I men's basketball players. And then the last item of functional expenses I want to talk about are the propaganda campaigns that the NCAA runs. And they do that through two firms, it looks like. In 2018, they listed this firm that had been on prior form 990s called uh, Bully Pulpit Interactive LLC. It is a propaganda machine, inside the Beltway propaganda machine. And they focus on political issues for the most part, but they have been doing positioning, public positioning and public relations work for the NCAA for a long time. And they get paid a bunch of money. They got paid, let's see, $6 million in 2018. And then just this past year, the NCAA brought in this sidearm sports company to do a makeover of their website. And it's a much better uh, website. It's very sophisticated. And that's run by, I think it's that it's either IMG or Learfield Sports. I can't remember which. But they have an affiliation with one of these mega sports marketing companies, or they're a division of one of these mega uh, sports marketing companies. And over the last several years, NCAA has paid tens of millions of dollars to groom its public image and to produce the most sophisticated propaganda that it can possibly produce to pursue its corrupt business interests. And that NCAA website is just a, it is a textbook study in propaganda. And I've talked about that quite a bit. I mean, that, that could be the subject of an entire podcast, tying it into propaganda studies and how the bigs, the, the big tobacco, big pharma, big gambling, big amateurism, how they influence public opinion. And it's through these very sophisticated marketing and branding campaigns and public positioning campaigns that they get all their false narratives and their lies into the public consciousness. Now I want to turn to a couple of other categories of expenses that are in this 990 tax return or included in some of the figures here. One are outright block grants to Divisions 2 and Divisions 3. They do nothing to contribute to the bottom line. They draw down on the bottom line. None of those products make money or contribute to NCAA revenue streams, yet they take a cut of March Madness money as a essentially a block grant, and combined, that number is upwards of $75 million. And it was that money that was the source of debate and discussion in this constitutional makeover. And the Division Two and Division Three interests were, you know, clamoring to get their welfare checks ensconced into constitutional law. And they wanted more than the cut that they got. And Bob Gates, who was the chair of the Constitution Committee in a podcast early on in the process, said that it was crucial to get those interests on board because that alone got you near to the two-thirds majority vote of all members that you needed to ratify the NCAA Constitution. They were bought off, and Gates essentially acknowledged that. And that is a gravy train funded exclusively by revenue from the Division I men's basketball tournament. And the other thing is that revenue from March Madness also pays for the expenses for every single championship in every single sport, except football, big-time football, because of Board of Regents, in every division. So on this Form 990, they list the Division I championship event expenses. That was $125 million in 2018. And that's for 90 sports. Everything from 
men's and women's basketball down to fencing and water polo and some of the most obscure non-revenue sports that the NCAA sponsors. Every single sport has a championship and the revenue from the March Madness tournament pays for every single one except for big time football. So $125 million for the Division I championships. The, for the Division II championship expenses, it was $30 million. For Division III championship expenses, it was $25 million. So we're pushing uh, $200 million just for putting on championships in every sport throughout the NCAA in every division, all paid for by men's basketball players. Now, I want to turn to another component of this exploitation model. And that is that the individuals who are in-system stakeholders closest to these big-time products, and I'm talking about the coaches and the athletics directors, the Power Five coaches and Power Five athletics directors, and in this case, the Villanova coach and athletics director from the Big East. But all of these people benefit directly off of the performance of these athletes in the NCAA tournament. So I'm, I'm going to take the, the gaudy salaries off the table. Bill Self's, I don't know what it is, $6 million a year salary, whatever it is. And who knows what Coach K is making. And I'll just note here, I have some figures I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw at you. I can only do that for the public schools. So for UNC and for Kansas, I have some numbers. We don't know what those numbers are at Duke and Villanova, but I can assure you that what you're going to hear from these public schools is going to be very similar to what you would see with the private schools. But the coaches and the athletics directors get bonus payments for the performance of the teams that their schools sponsor in men's basketball. These bonus structures are really interesting. I could probably do a separate episode on that. I'm not going to go too deep in the weeds, but they basically are conduits to jacking up the salaries for the coaches and the athletics directors. As to the athletics directors in particular, it's just, <laughs> I don't know how you defend this. They're just getting free money for things that they have nothing to do with directly. And this is a common tactic for Power Five athletics directors. I talked about Ohio State athletics director Gene Smith's contract a couple of episodes ago. And these bonus structures really are geared towards football, men's basketball, and women's basketball. There are some payoffs for success in the other sports, but those are the, the three products where the athletics directors and the coaches could rake in some serious bonus money. And I just want to make an observation here. When you're looking at the salary structures for the high-profile coaches, the kind of imperial coaches like Bill Self and Coach K, Jay Wright, Hubert Davis one day, he's not there yet. But when you look at the salary structure for the, the coaches, they make so much money outside of the bonuses that I don't think that the bonuses have any motivational impact. I wouldn't think so. I mean, they still get paid pretty good money. But compared to the the money that they're making in their base compensation, it's it's not that big. That's not true for the athletics directors. This bonus money can add up and it can really jack up the income of these athletics directors. And uh, there are different ways of doing it. So I only have two examples here. And I'm going to start with Kansas. So I guess I'll just start with Bill Self's contract. And he did a lifetime contract. It got a lot of attention. And I didn't uh, do all the math. I think it looks like about uh, $6 bucks 
tax and basic guaranteed income. And then he gets camp money, he gets some bonus money. And it's interesting the way that they structure this. Again, this could be a, an entirely separate episode and I may pull some more contracts to talk about, you know, how these things are put together. But the, the bonus structure in Self's contract says, let's see, it's called incentive payments. And he gets payments if Kansas wins the Big 12 regular season, the Big 12 tournament championship, and uh, he gets a nice payment if he's the Associated Press Coach of the Year. But then it, with respect to the NCAA tournament, if they just make it to the tournament, Self gets $50,000. Then if they make it to the Sweet 16, he gets another $100,000. And then if he makes it to the Final Four, he gets another $150,000. Then if he makes it to the championship game, he gets another two. $100,000. So that's a half a million dollars in potential bonuses, depending on the performance of the team. And I'm only going to look at this through the final four. We don't know what's going to happen. But he has already earned $300,000 in bonuses from this NCAA tournament. Well, that's not $6 million, but it's not chump change either. $300,000, potentially $500,000 is a lot of money. And I guess I should also say that the coaches have a, a direct impact on the success of the team. So these bonuses make much more sense for the coaches, in my judgment, than they do for the athletics directors. But one of the things that all of the Final Four coaches have said, and Coach K and Hubert Davis were really outspoken on this, and that is that the success of their teams in this tournament was not the product of coaching, that neither of those phenomenal coaches made any magical plays or pulled any magical strings. It was these athletes stepping up and owning the moment and then achieving at the highest level to advance to the biggest stage in college basketball. The success of these teams is attributable to the players, not the coaches, by the admission of these two exceptional coaches. And Bill Self made similar comments after the Miami game in the Elite Eight. So Bill Self's at 300 grand already. Let's look at the Kansas Athletics Director's contract. And it's actually pretty modest, honestly. It's not loaded up with these incentives that you see with Bubba Cunningham's contract at UNC or Gene Smith's contract at Ohio State. And the Kansas AD is Travis Goff, and his compensation is $700,000 a year. That's a nice chunk of change. And instead of having a specific achievement-oriented line item bonus structure, the university has the authority to, they're not required to, but they can pay the athletics director an annual bonus not to exceed 20% of the amount of his base pay. So that would be $140,000. And given Kansas's success in basketball alone, I think there's a decent chance that he would get that bonus. I'm, I'm not sure what Kansas has done in other sports and all that. So let's go to UNC. And I couldn't get an actual full copy of Coach Davis's contract. There's like a fact sheet that they published, which shows the basic components and the bonus structure. So Davis gets uh, a nice base salary and th these salary structures are a little misleading because the base salary really isn't the salary. There are other types of payments that come in that really dwarf the actual base salary. So Davis's quote unquote base salary is $400,000. He gets a supplemental 600000 for a uh, million dollars. And then there's another provision that allows him to get about $750,000 from shoe companies. But in the bonus structure, let's just look at what it does here. And these are for the coaches. These bonuses are 
cumulative. You add them up. So you get paid the amount of money corresponding to the round in addition to the other rounds that you win. With with Bubba Cunningham's contract, it's not cumulative. You get paid a, the, the sum of the highest round they advance to. But for Davis, in the NCAA tournament, he gets 25000 just for making the tournament, seventy five for uh, the round of 32, 75 for the Sweet 16, 200000 for the Elite Eight, and 200000 for the Final Four. And then if he wins the national championship, if UNC wins the national championship, it's uh, 250000 So far, Davis has earned $575,000 in bonuses. And again, he's a coach, so he's a lot closer to the success of that team than the athletics director. But again, he has said outright, this is about the players this year. It's not about the coaching. So now let's turn to Bubba Cunningham, the UNC Athletics Director. And let's see, annual compensation, he's at 740000 in base pay. And then I'll also note that uh, UNC throws in another form of compensation called the Longevity Incentive Compensation Award. So every year, if Cunningham's still breathing and he's still employed as the athletics director, he gets an additional $200,000. That's pretty nice right there. And then if the men's basketball team makes it to the NCAA postseason tournament, then Cunningham gets one-twelfth of the sum of his then applicable salary, annual salary. And that comes to $61,000. And then for men's basketball, there is a round-specific bonus system. And let's see, if the men's basketball team wins a national championship, Cunningham gets $100,000. If it makes it to the Final Four, 75, makes it to the Sweet 16, 50,000. And then there's some regular season stuff. So Cunningham's already earned that 75,000. He doesn't get to add up all the, any of the prior round stuff. He just gets that 75,000. And then if UNC wins the national championship, he would get 100,000, not 175,000, just 100,000. So those two bonus payments combined come to $136,000 in bonuses that Bubba Cunningham has already earned off of the men's basketball team. So at UNC, between Davis and Cunningham, those two men have already earned $711,000 in bonus payments for the performance of the UNC basketball team in the NCAA tournament. In Kansas, Bill Self and the athletics director have earned a total of $440,000 off of the performance of the Kansas basketball players. And again, we don't have the contracts for the coaches or the ADs at Duke and Villanova. I'd be shocked if they were substantially different. I'm sure there are bonus incentives in both of those contracts. So I want us to hold on to those numbers. I'm going to come back to them in a little bit. And next, I want to fold in some some market data information and some advertising revenue data information that is just eye-popping and speaks to the extraordinary value of these particular products, these four particular products, Duke, UNC, Kansas, and Villanova men's basketball. And there's an article in Sportico. It's dated yesterday, March 29th, by a guy named uh, Anthony 
Krupe, and he gets into some of the hardcore number crunching on on ratings and on advertising and on some of the minutia in the business transactions in uh, big-time college sports. But the title of this article is St. Peter's Shook Up March Madness, but Duke UNC will be seismic. And he goes through just how valuable these products are in terms of viewership. And he, he looks back uh, a few years. And then he talks about how popular St. Peter's was. And they had actually the highest rated game. Their game against UNC drew almost 9 million viewers, which was higher than any other game. And number two and three were Duke with the Michigan State game and then the Texas Tech game. And then they were talking about what a huge draw Duke is and always is. And then the, the stakes for this final final four, the last f- hurrah for Coach K in this final four in this historic matchup against UNC. And, and he makes the point, particularly with respect to Duke, that Duke always draws phenomenal ratings, eye-popping ratings in the NCAA basketball tournament. And then he talks a little bit about, I, I, that's something I mentioned uh, a few episodes ago, this is an interesting year because CBS doesn't have the final four. TBS, a, a Turner affiliate, has the final four, and it has a smaller cable footprint. So it has about 17 million less homes on board than CBS does, but that you may have viewership pick up as people are looking to watch this game. And I'm a good example. I wound up uh, buying a subscription to Sling TV, which carries TBS and TNT, just to watch this Final Four because I'm off the grid. I don't have cable. I don't have dish. And I think there are a lot of people in, in my situation who otherwise wouldn't have access to the Turner products. And then Kruby talks about the value of the Kansas and Villanova products as well. And then he talks about the cost for advertising. Then he says, should Duke advance to the championship game, TBS TNT can expect to top the 20 million viewer mark. Given an average unit cost of around 2 million for each in-game ad unit, college basketball's first sold-out tilt since 2019 should prove to be a steal for marketers. And uh, so I'm not sure what he means by in-game ad unit. I don't know if that means a minute or 30 seconds, but either way, it's a boatload of money and a $2 million minute, let's call it a minute, that's hard to beat. And all this inventory is already sold out. And he closes it out by saying, if you're among the insurance companies, wireless providers, and automakers who snapped up inventory for Saturday night's game, he's talking about the Final Four, the Duke UNC game, you got yourself one hell of a bargain, which means by implication that if the market wasn't closed, if it wasn't already sold out and there were still open bidding for advertising slots, there's no telling what that number would look like and what the demand would be for those coveted slots in one of the biggest games, at least on paper, in the history of the NCAA tournament. And now I want to bring this home to where I think it really needs to land. And this is a difficult thing to talk about because the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have made a full-time job of ignoring the racial overlay to the big-time college sports business model. But let's look at who these players are. And so I, I did for the Final Four what I did for the Sweet 16. And I went back and looked at the rosters, and I selected the the 
players who play more than 20 minutes a game over the course of the regular season. So the uniform stat sheet is for the regular season. It has about 32 games. Uh, Occasionally, there are a couple more than that. But you get a sense over the course of a season of who the coaches truly value. And the ultimate and easiest yardstick for that is how much time the players uh, are on the court. That's a great equalizer, regardless of the system that a coach plays, regardless of the particular skill set that a player brings to the roster. So across those four rosters, there were 24 total players, six on each team, that met that threshold requirement. 24 high-value athletes. And let me just give you the racial breakdown of those athletes. Of those 24, three are white, 13%. One is Hispanic, 4%. 20 are African-American, 83%. And I think that is consistent. That's a consistent pattern that you would see across the Power Five schools. And I guess you could include the Big East. We have Villanova. But across the Power Five schools, that's what you're going to see. And that is an eye-popping number. And it puts into context the true value of the African-American players to the big-time college sports marketplace in Division I men's basketball and in this NCAA March Madness tournament. These players dominate this tournament. And we have to acknowledge that reality. And people uh, might say, gosh, you're saying these guys should be paid because they're black? No, I'm saying they should be paid and their true value should be recognized because they are Americans. They are free Americans. And they should be treated on the same terms as any other free American would be treated. They should be able to exploit their talent and their labor and have it bring whatever the market bears. And the market in big-time college sports is a corrupt illegal market based on monopoly practice, cartel practice, and exploitation. The United States Supreme Court essentially said that in a unanimous decision in June of 2021. So no, these athletes shouldn't be paid because they're black. They should be paid because they're Americans, but because they are black Americans, black young men, In the United States of America, they are not on a level playing field with the rest of America. And if you ignore that reality, I mean, it's easy to do and it's tempting to do. And it's uh, easy to look at all these false narratives. Well, they're all going to make money in the NBA or look how well they're treated or they have no independent value outside of their affiliation with their school or their Hall of Fame coach. And all of these ridiculous arguments that are made to delegitimize the true value of these athletes. And in our country, given the history of our treatment of black men, it is very easy to get those delegitimization narratives into the public consciousness, to get buy into them at a subconscious level because the labor pool is comprised of black men. And I think unless we can acknowledge that possibility, then we're not going to really move forward at the normative level on athletes' rights, particularly in this ridiculous business model that Miles Brand constructed to justify all the corruption in the system that requires, mandates the maximum exploitation of the football and men's basketball players. So that money can keep everybody rich and happy, and then we'll justify it as consistent with our nonprofit mission because it pays for 
uh, non-revenue and Olympic sport athlete scholarships for athletes who are overwhelmingly white. That's the business model. It's an explicit business model. It's a mandate under the collegiate model. And how can we permit that? It, it, it's just offensive on its face. Whatever its uh, initial purpose was, whatever its intent was, the impact of that business model is the definition of exploitation. And because of the composition of this labor pool, it is race-based exploitation. And I think that we should be able to have an honest conversation about that. But we get all these brushback pitches. So again, I'm going to get into all these myths and false narratives and then really dive into the race issues in, in other episodes that I think I'm going to get to sooner rather than later. But to close this out, I just want to make a couple of observations and then pose a, a couple of questions. And wouldn't it be nice if the coaches, the final four coaches in their pre-Final Four press conference issued a, a, a statement that they wanted to have a joint press conference. And they sat down and they acknowledged some of the realities of the business model that I discussed in this episode. And they said, this is wrong. It's just wrong. It's un-American and we're not going to participate in it. And we are going right now to pledge to give our athletes, particularly those athletes that are the high value athletes and drive the value in this entire tournament. We're going to give them a bonus. They're going to get the same bonus that we get and that our athletics directors get. And we're going to take all that bonus money and then pay these players the average of all of those bonuses as their own bonus, their performance bonus for everything they have done to make this tournament one of the most valuable sports commodities in the history of American sports. And this is a small thing. That number is probably going to be four or $500,000, I would guess. And that is a nice chunk of change, but it still pales in comparison to the money that's flowing around every other aspect of this market except for for compensating the labor that drives the value in it. Wouldn't it be great if those coaches in unison said that and said, we're committing to this payment now and we are fully aware that it is a violation of NCAA rules, but we don't give a damn because NCAA rules are unjust, unfair, and un-American. And we're going to do this. And if the NCAA wants to come after us, bring it on. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? And I, I, would that be the end of college sports as we know it? If players got that kind of bonus, that kind of performance bonus that these athletics directors get who have absolutely nothing to do with uh, the, the team's success or failure for that matter. Absolutely nothing to do with. If the athletics directors can get performance bonuses off of these athletes' talent, skill, and ability, then why can't the athletes get a piece of that? Instead of a Barca Lounge or a, a video gaming set, the tournaments are allowed to give some swag to the players. And yeah, it's a nice little thing, but do you think they'd rather have half a million dollars in a bonus check or a $300 recliner? And I think an important component of that message would be that we can make this commitment and these athletes can get these bonus checks, these performance bonuses, and it is not going to interfere in any way with our enjoyment of this tournament or diminish any of the storylines that have the potential to make this a really special final four. None of that has to change. All we're doing is bringing a little integrity to this dysfunctional market 
And we're saying to these exceptional athletes who have brought their universities to a worldwide stage and all the benefits from, that flow from that stage, we're just saying to those athletes, here's a little token of our appreciation. We understand your value. We appreciate your value. And we're just going to stop the insanity, the true madness in March right now. And we're committing to these bonuses. And then we will commit to you that we together and individually will work as hard as we can to make this symbolic gesture a system-wide philosophy that treats you as free Americans. Wouldn't that be beautiful at the final four? All right. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. And as always, I want to thank you for joining. It's an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. <laughs>